Welcome to Write Your Book in a Flash with Dan Janelle, the only podcast where you'll learn how successful people just like you have grown their businesses, expanded their influence, and made more money by writing a book. On each episode, you'll learn the inside secrets to help you create a book that can serve as a powerful marketing tool to skyrocket your business. I'm your host, Dan Janelle. I help thought leaders, business executives, and entrepreneurs write their books. To find out more, go to writeyourbookinaflash.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Klaus Rausted, all the way from Denmark. How are you? Far away, I think, is the simple answer to that, all the way across the Atlantic. But due to the magic of technology, right in your ear. And it sounds like you're right next door. So if you if we didn't say anything, no one would know. Klaus, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I think for the purpose of this interview, the interesting thing about me is that I've written 30 books. And that's perhaps the, the, the fact that we should dive into today. I mean, I could say a lot of other stuff, but let's, uh, let's focus on the meat, the 30 books. Very good. 30 books. That's a lot of books. Uh, why did you, are they all the same genre or are they different? Or tell us a little bit more about uh, the scope of the books. So there's a, an ironic thing in that I don't really like writing. And I've never been a full-time writer or anything close. It's always been like side projects uh, to what I've been doing. And for many years, I was a thought leader in a very small and very uh, distinct space, which is the live-action role-play space globally. And I was one of the thought leaders there, and, and that meant a lot of that came out as books. So today I write about innovation. I'm writing about a book on how to be the best in the world at anything with somebody who actually is one of the best in the world at something. So it's not just my pretentiousness um, and helping other people write books, not as well as you do, but on a, on a kind of a, on a quick and dirty scale, I think is the way to put it. Okay. Uh, you're one of the most creative people I've ever met. You know, we belong to a mastermind group and uh, the, the, the things that you produce are just absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm curious, you say you don't like to write, but yet you've written 30 books. Is that, at odds with each other? Uh, is it tough to write if you don't like to write? Or what goes through your mind when there's, you do that? There's some irony in it. And I think one of the advantages of not me, of me not really liking to write is that I try to do it fast and efficient. It's like lazy people who exercise a lot because they realize it's a lot more work not exercising than, than getting it done. So, and, and sadly there, I, I'm not... Uh, I'm not lazy enough to, regu- to exercise regularly, but I am lazy enough to do book writing very, very fast. So I'm not a bad writer. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good writer, actually. But I don't really like doing it, so I don't get caught up in it as an activity. It's not my preferred go-to thing. If I can get a stage and speak, that I can do for a long time with little or no reason to, sometimes very little reason uh, or excuse. But when it comes to writing, I'd rather not. So when I actually do it, I do it very fast. What are some of your tips for writing a book fast? The first tip is realizing how books work. And we're right now in this interesting period of time, which is that the people who make the decisions, they're, most of them are my age or older. I'm 41. And that means that I'm part of the last micro generation, the so-called Oregon Trail micro generation that had an analog childhood, but a digital uh, adulthood, digital young adulthood. So I played with the marbles and the sticks when I was a kid and then started playing with the computers when I was a young adult. 
And that means that I'm part of the last generation that had books and took them seriously in themselves. Now, luckily for me, most of the people out there making decisions are even older than I am. So they still think books matter. And there was a time when that was true. When I was a kid, and if I wanted to know more about volcanoes, I could ask my parents who I lived with. Maybe they knew something. I could ask a teacher. I could ask some friends. I could ask adults in my circle. I could go to a library and, and take out a book. My mother is an old librarian. So that was something I knew how to do. Or I could peruse my parents' small private library, but it didn't have that many volcano books. I could wait for something to come on TV or on the radio, but all of that was very passive and hard. Today, if I want to know something about volcanoes, it means that I, op I take up my phone and within five seconds, I have articles written by PhDs, high, high production value documentaries, podcasts from volcano experts from around the world. And if I'm willing to pay, I get even more. So kind of the, the way we, there was a time when a book was something magical. And if somebody had written a book, they'd gone through all sorts of gatekeepers to get there publishers, layouters, distributors, retailers, all that sort of jazz. So if you stood with a book that said the truth about volcanoes, an illustrated guide by Martin Martinson, then there was a pretty good chance that Martin Martinson actually knew his stuff. Today, the same Martin Martinson can be sitting uh, with a pipe of something funny and illegal somewhere in Oklahoma and he can decide to write everything he knows about volcanoes, which may or may not be good, upload it to a publishing website, and three days later, I can have that book land on my desk in Milwaukee. There's no barriers. The $12.99 I pay, he even gets to keep $5. There's no control. There's no nothing. But everybody who makes decisions, the old people, the people like us, Stan, they think that books went through gatekeepership because that's what we were raised with. That's what we know. That's what we know in our bones, that books are special. We don't throw them out. We respect them. Oh, you're an author. You've written something. Now that was true once today. It's not true, but a lot of the people making decisions still think it is. And that's a dirty secret to give away, but it's also, it, it's something I've tested many times with many people write a book. Then you're a star. So do you think writing a book and being a star is still applicable today? Is that still a mindset that people oh, have? Definitely. Or does it, definitely. does it, does it transcend a, a gener is there a generation gap in there that people under a certain age look at a book as not being valuable and people over a certain age or not? So the irony comes now because the second half of the equation is that people mostly don't read books. There's some few people who do. The lovely people, especially the academics and kind of the really, the really, the, the serious thought philosophers of, of all kinds, they read the stuff. But if I go out and I tell you that you're working, let's say that you're working in shipping and there's some guy who's like, who was a VP at the Mask, the world's shipping giant, and he's now written a book on uh, the use of ports in the 21st century. You're going to think, wow, that's just me. I want to read that book. And it comes in a 600 page version. And it comes in a seven-minute TED Talk version. Odds are good that you're going to watch the TED Talk, and then you're not going to – you might buy the book, but you're not going to open it. You might kind of refer to it. You're definitely going to hire the guy to consult for you, but you're not going to actually open the book. And we see this in crazy, crazy ways, that, that the book functions as a stamp of authority because it proves I know stuff about this subject and I did some things. but. It doesn't, nobody necessarily opens it. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, um, I go to seminars all the time where they talk about the future of books. And they say, you know, the, the rumor is no one's buying books. And the truth is, if you look at book sales, they're actually very, very strong. They have not gone down. Um, but uh, it's interesting. Also, there are, st there are studies that back up exactly what you say, that people buy a book, but they don't read a book or they don't read the book entirely or they don't get past page 37. And I'm reminded of one, uh, one marketing guy who said uh, or actually wrote in his book on page like 103, if you're, if you're reading this book and see this book right now, uh, send an email and I'll send you a hundred dollars and no one in 20 and years. Nobody did. And, nobody, and, and I think part of it is because we're used to a world again, here, the adults here uh, are used to a world where books were necessary because they were a good way of communicating information. Simon Sinek, I assume you're familiar with him. Of course. Simon Sinek, start with why. How long does it take you to explain to me what the idea with start with why is? I listened to that audio book, and I think there was a lot of repetition in that book as well. So, yeah, I certainly agree with you. And he's probably sold about 5 million copies, too. Which he has, and, and it's brilliant. <laughs> and it's, it's, the, it's such a brilliant book because the whole book is in the title. You look at it, you see the title, and oh, yeah, that's smart. Then you read maybe the, the intro or the preface or what it is. Then you're there. And Simon himself, he'd probably say, of course, that that's the whole idea. And if somebody says, but why didn't you write the 12-page version if you only needed 12? Why do you need 300 pages to share one idea that's on the cover? Because nobody would have taken him seriously. Everybody <laughs> would have saved time. He would have been just as good at explaining. But nobody – what we really want is we want the 600-page book that we're not going to read but that proves to us that the guy knows his stuff. And then we want the two-minute YouTube summary – or we want to hire them to run the workshop. And, and if, once you accept that, which not everybody does, and I may be pissing off a lot of people with this, such is life. And, but once you accept that, it means that you start writing your books in a different way. How so? How would, the, how would these books be written differently? They should be written in a way, and, and my latest one, The Innovation Cycle, is a good example of this. They should be written in a way so that somebody who just flips through them at random can jump in on any page and start there and get valuable information. Every page is a standalone that makes sense. Of course, the whole thing makes more sense if you read it together, but every page needs to be valuable. Every page needs to be an entrance into the book. And it means that some people are just going to browse through it. Some people are going to look through it and see, oh, are there interesting models? What about the illustrations? Is, is the print quality nice? Does it feel serious? And based on that, they might decide to later read it or, or they might just kind of look at a summary or they might give me a call and pull me as a consultant. Then they'll, of course, pretend they've read the book. But <laughs> Yeah, that's fascinating on so many levels because sometimes when I pick up a book, I will not open it from page one. I will just open it at random and the universe will tell me what it wants me to see. And more often than not, it's, it's valuable information. And on another note, uh, Jeffrey Gittimer, who is a very well-known sales trainer in the United States, has written a number of books that, that, that go into your category or your description immediately. Large type, different colored background papers. Um, you can pick it up anywhere and find an inspirational quote or a directive or uh, something that tells you what to do or a story, and it works. So, yeah, I think you're spot on here. Um, what tips do you have in writing a book like that? My first tip is that you should write a book and accept that nobody's going to read it. And that means that 
it should be readable. Don't get me wrong. And, and, and for those of you listening who think, oh, he probably just writes shit books. No, 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 no. The, the, the last book got very, very good reviews. Um, and that was written with this and, and on a new subject, that sort of thing. So it's not that I just write crap, but it's that I write things expecting that very few people are going to read them. And that, of course, means that it needs to be fast to read. It needs to be very readable. It needs to kind of flow quickly. And it needs to be something that people can take in chunks. They're, for example, if they open it on a, on a weird page, or just if they kind of read a little here, a little there, a little there. Because if you're writing something where a chapter is 26 pages, and you need to do it like basically in one fitting to, in one sitting to get anything out of it, that's going to scare off a lot of people, and they're going to kind of they're going to lose momentum, and then they don't pick it up again. Our chapters in this book are six pages, and that includes quotes and uh, guides on what to do and illustrations. So, so as one uh, guy who read the book, a, a CEO I know, said, "It's great. I can read while I'm kind of." Uh, I think he said something about taking a break. I really think he meant if he goes to the toilet, he can read a chapter or two. Uh, I'm sure that's what he meant. And if uh, if people can consume your information in a way, in any way that they want, then it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> who are we to criticize? Uh, I always tell my clients that people want to be able to pick up a book that, and start to read it when they get on a plane in New York and finish it by the time they get in Los, well, they land in Los Angeles. You're probably saying they get on a plane and uh, fin finish it in Washington, which is only maybe an hour or 45 minutes, <laughs> so even less. Exactly, exactly. Uh, people I think the, the, if you read the last book I did from cover to cover, I think it's uh, somewhere between one and one and a half hours, depending on the, your reading speed. Yeah, and that's not a bad thing. Um, but I'm curious, do you, you multi-purpose a book like that? Do you read it? Do you create an audio book? Do you create YouTube videos of the whole book or parts of the book? Do you break it out? Um, any thoughts about that? Sure. In this case, it's a book that's meant to start conversations. And that means there's right now only one way to get that book. And that's by buying it and getting it physically delivered to you. And there's a reason for that, which is that even though it's a lot more work than if it was just automated distribution, ebooks, audiobooks, the whole shebang, it is that every time somebody buys a book, it means I get to start a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. okay. So not only do they get a book, they also get a dedication, especially if they paid for one. They also get a little bit of surprise in their in their uh, in their packet. I might even send them if I can fit it within the weight limits. They get a book to give to a friend. How do you start conversations with readers? If you write in a book, if you take one of your books and you write in it, Dear Klaus, it was really good to have you on the podcast. You're totally outrageous, but I wish you uh, lots of luck. Uh, kind regards, Dan. And then you send it to me. Then when I open that book, I'm going to feel special because I will. It, it's going to be an actual human-to-human -human action. You spent time. You did the thing, you wrote it, you actually, it, it meant something. And I'm going to think, okay, Dan sent me this. Dan and I are now a little bit connected. And Dan has written to me now, so now I have an excuse if I need Dan's services for maybe ghostwriting the next one or getting some promotional help or whatever it is, then I know I can reach out. And I can, because I have an excuse, and that excuse is, hey, Dan, thank you for your kind note in the book. Uh, I found it very instructive. I'd actually like to talk to you about maybe helping me out on a project. Fantastic. 
Let's talk about other ideas about how you use the book in marketing, because it's clear that you don't really, it doesn't matter if they read the book or not. And I've told clients this as well, that people look at the front cover and they get instant, you, they, they find instant credibility with you. They read the back cover and they read a little bit your bio or they read testimonials from readers or clients who stick up for you. And maybe they read something inside the book and then they make an immediate impression that uh, they're credible. I want to work with them. They must know what they're talking about. They've written a book. <laughs> and if that's all the book does, that's fine. Uh, and, and I hate to say it, but there are books that actually have 100 blank pages inside. <laughs> and they sell pretty well, too. So um, anyway, getting back to my question, how do you use the book in marketing to get more consulting work? So first of all, I use the book as exactly what you describe as a way to cement my authority, as a way to establish and say, I actually know stuff. And of course, I know stuff. It's so that if it actually, if it happens that they call me and ask me to do a thing, I can deliver. It's not that I'm just pulling it out of, of thin air, but it's a way of saying, I know stuff. It's also a way of showing some of the strengths. Anybody who reads the innovation cycle, just to stay with that, will say, okay, this guy knows something about writing. His partner knows something about visual thinking. They know something about kind of systemic thinking, about, about uh, frameworks, about creating these structures. Maybe we can use that. So it's a way of showing who we are and how we think, even if you don't necessarily uh, get anything directly out of it. If you're not going to use the framework, you still learn something about us. And the second way is, is some of the small tricks around it, that I'm the director of something called the College of Extraordinary Experiences, which is this wild and crazy event at a castle in Poland that some people have called the Harvard of Experience Design. We're pretty happy with that, so we mention it as often as we can. And at that castle is the only place in the world you can get a kind of a deck of experience design cards from the participants there. It's a thing that... They go on treasure hunts during the event and find that these are like tips from professionals from many industries. So I put one of those cards in each book with no explanation. And if somebody, if, you're, if you've gotten a book and a card falls out of it and it has some interesting tip and a website, chances of you going to that website, they're not 100, but they're not zero either. Mm-hmm. Especially if the thing you're getting is not like, here is marketing material, but it has value in itself. Even if you never go to the website, it has value in itself. And the best thing I think I can do is is inspire other people to steal and copy ideas. Somebody gets one of my books and says, oh, I should do this thing. Then I'm happy. Or if somebody said, oh, I like how how they chose a hardcover format, even though it's more expensive, even though the shipping is more, even though it, it weighs more, but because it feels better. Great. This has been a fascinating conversation. Klaus, tell us, who is your ideal client and how can they get in touch with you? My ideal client, since, since one of my specialties is storytelling, is a big company that it, because then they have some money. The small companies are just as great to work with. They just don't. They don't have the money to pay my outrageous fees. So a big company that realizes it is in trouble but still has the maneuver room to do something about it. So uh, an airline that sees, okay, the world is not coming back to where it is, but we still have something to leverage. Not a bankrupt airline. There are plenty of those. But an airline that realizes which way the world is heading and is open to something new. Great. And how can they get in touch with you? What is your website? It's uh, klauslostel.dk. It's uh, my name. But I'm one of those tricky people that if you Google me, I have a very solid digital footprint. And you will be caught up in 
uh, let's just call it a rabbit hole of uh, <laughs> of terrible proportions. <laughs> well, it's always great to meet fascinating people who wear many hats and have lived many lives. Klaus, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening to Write Your Book in a Flash with Dan Janelle, the only podcast that shows you exactly how people just like you have built their businesses by writing a book. If you'd like to write your book but don't know where to start, you can find great information at writeyourbookinaflash.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another insightful interview to help you become a top business leader.